morning, All Souls. Good to be back with you after uh, a week out. Uh, we recently wrapped up a six-week series on the practice of simplicity, and in just a few weeks, we'll be in the season of Advent, where we are celebrating the King who has come into the world. And uh, it's a season that awakens our longing for that kingdom to come in its fullness. And man, it cannot come soon enough. But wedged in between those two seasons, with simplicity in the rearview mirror and uh, Advent in front of us, I wanted to do something that was not so much of a departure from the one, but more of a bridge that takes the one into the other. Uh, asking that question, how can we take this practice of simplicity into how we celebrate Christmas? What bearing does it have into the way that we uh, we celebrate Advent and the coming season. So specifically, the questions are, how can we scale back on spending on ourselves, focus on gifts of presence rather than on simply giving presents? How can we take that impulse toward generosity and the joy of giving and turn that towards those in our community who have real needs? Also, we can be free from the cultural captivity toward consumerism and truly worship. So that's the game plan for the next uh, few weeks. Mike talked about scaling back last week. This week is be present. Next week, serve others and then worship fully. And I wanted to start this before Advent uh, because by the time Advent comes, we are already like in the grind, right? Um, and the, the, the series title is from the words of that old Christmas hymn, Joy to the world, let every heart prepare him room. It is really hard to prepare when you are in the thick of it, torn in multiple directions, have that kind of constant low-grade fatigue behind on everything, beset by constant distraction, burdened by all of the pressure to manufacture a certain kind of feeling for Christmas. And I don't know about you, but a lot of us, like myself, like, I, there have been times when I've reached the end of the Advent season, what should be this joyful celebration of the incarnation of, of God into our midst, and I have this kind of aching emptiness, and I'm sifting through piles of things that I don't need, that I may never use. And somehow I have this feeling that I, I, I missed it, whatever it was that my soul was longing for. And we all know that cliche, you know, that the best thing in life are not things. And yet, every year, time in, time out, we kind of get sucked into advertising's ploy. Uh, it's gotten a little bit out of control. I think this year is the 22nd anniversary of Lexus's uh, Make It a December to Remember ad campaign. You know, the ones that have, like, this one right here. Uh, just out of curiosity, no judgment. Anybody ever bought somebody a Lexus with a big red bow for Christmas? I'm glad nobody raised their hands because I lied. There's a little bit of judgment involved in that if, if you've done that. Um, maybe that's just because I'm like, what world do you live in? But I, Jill would be like, you did what? I don't even want a Lexus. That's a major life decision. Uh, anyway, something is a little bit off with all of that. And one poll found recently that more than half of shoppers plan to go into debt this season. And you dig into the reasons for why that is, and it's always a mixed bag of things. Almost half said it was to make themselves happy. 
Uh, 41% said it's to make their children happy. 41% said uh, to make their spouse or partner happy. 44% said it's to make a friend or a family member happy. And there, there's kind of, you know, a kernel a bit of, of truth in all of that. I, I'm all for exchanging gifts on Christmas morning. So let me just say that from the outset. The next three weeks are not going to be like, you know, the Grinch that stole Christmas comes to all. So that's not, that's not what we're doing. Uh, I love the the look on a loved one's face when you give them a gift and they're like, oh, you, you see me, you, you know who I am. But just, just to say, as we've kind of been talking about all this time over the last few weeks, all that spending, all that debt, does it ever really buy happiness? Or is it just a way of lulling you into a kingdom that only knows how to reduce you to one story, desire, buy use, rinse, and repeat. I mean, if you think about the most memorable gifts that you have ever received, uh, the ones that you think about, you know, years after, they're almost always the kind that celebrate a relationship. It's a simple picture frame that doesn't contain a great work of art in it, but it's the memory of a moment that your child gave to you specifically because they remembered that time and they remembered you and them together in that time. It's a way of saying, I'm with you. It's a gift of presence. So all that is to say, this morning and the next few weeks before the mad rush of gift buying begins, I wanted to slow down and offer us a look at a story in the Gospels that's all about acknowledging the gift of God's presence and then honoring us with our presence in return. With that, I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have them, to John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. And uh, please pray with me as we read. Come, Holy Spirit, as we come to this reading of your gospel that we ask that you would unstop our ears and alight our hearts that we may truly hear and hearing that we may follow you and practice your way in the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is the word made flesh. Amen. John 12, one through eight. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with them. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was to later betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to it, whatever was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus eating in people's homes. Uh, He 
one of the things that's fascinating about him, this picture that emerges from the Gospels, is that he was equally at home uh, among the poor as he was among the rich. The, the Gospels portray him eating so much, in fact, among the upper crust that the Pharisees accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. And then when he began proclaiming the reality of the kingdom, he was supported by a group of donors, um, some of whom must have been wealthy. There was enough money that one of his disciples, Judas, needed to manage the budget. Spoiler alert, that didn't work out so well. But people recognized that Jesus was significant all throughout his ministry. At some point, he was given a a robe in fine purple that was one seamless garment uh, from, from top to bottom. It was worth so much that the soldiers gambled for it at his crucifixion. And so Jesus was not unaccustomed to wealth. And yet he lived in the tension of acknowledging that this world and everything in it was created good by God. It was meant to be enjoyed and meant to be shared with those in need. That tension is right here in this gospel scene. John paints the picture like this. Jesus is sitting down to dinner with Lazarus and Martha and a bunch of friends. It's only uh, a few days before he will gather his disciples together in an upper room for one final meal before being led off to trial and the cross. And for all intents and purposes, it's just an ordinary meal. And then suddenly, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, comes into the room, takes a full pound of the finest perfume and pours it all over Jesus' feet. A full, I I don't know, like, if that's a lot of perfume or not. I mean, maybe you will find yourself stuck in a few days, you you know, a few weeks from now, a few days before Christmas, looking for a gift, You might be a little bit disoriented. You might go into a mall and the fragrance section of a department store. There's all these products and sizes that you haven't heard of and bottles that have shapes that you don't understand. And you might be asking the question, I don't know, how much is appropriate? How much perfume should I get? Like, I don't know, is a pound of perfume the right amount? Like, how many pounds is the right amount of pounds of perfume? So I asked Siri about this. Turns out they sell the stuff by the ounce. A pound is just like an astronomical amount of perfume. Anyway, Judas and all the disciples are there. They're hanging out in the back of the party, kind of seeing what's going on, keeping an eye on the scene. He sees Mary, and he just, like, loses it. He takes one look at it and says, yo, that was like 300 denarii worth of perfume just wasted. And all the other disciples are like, dude, you seem to know an awful lot about the market value of perfume. (laughs) Like, what's going on here? But let's just do a little bit of math. A denarius was an average daily wage in the Roman world. If you were to you know, translate that, uh, actually, Renita Knight told me in between services, she looked it up, uh, that a pound of nard would cost about $40,000 today. Ton of money, right? So that's a lot of Chanel number five, like just going out onto the floor. And you can kind of see Judas's point, right? This is just like, this is a crazy amount of money. Now imagine the tension that's in that room. First of all, like you've got somebody carrying in something that expensive in the first place. I was going to raise a few eyebrows, right? Like, ooh, look at you. And then the scent of that much perfume while you're trying to eat. I mean, that's like, you know, a middle school cafeteria after prom level <laughs> of like scent going on there. And then the questions start to come, right? Right? Where did Mary get all this money anyway? 
why does she have such a massive amount of perfume? Like, what's that all about? Is this her and her brothers and her sister's retirement savings all thrown into one fragile investment? Uh, And then what's this? She's kneeling at Jesus' feet. This goes against all of the social customs. Women didn't really talk to men in a conservative religious uh, Middle Eastern culture. Uh, Women in general, like, you know, didn't, didn't, talk to them, much less touch them, much less touch their feet. This was seen in that culture as a, a profound symbol of intimacy, either something that uh, would be reserved for, you know, behind closed doors or something that a male servant would do. This is not something that you just go around doing. And so she is inviting all kinds of shame upon herself. She's putting Jesus in a really compromised position. And now she's, she's picking up the bottle of perfume. She's pouring it all over Jesus' feet. I don't know what your dinner parties are like, but this is a pretty awkward scene. I mean, imagine just making intimate gestures in front of everybody, that's one thing, but then imagine just pouring out all that money onto the floor. Uh, I just watched the World Series celebration, you know, they're pouring champagne all over each other. But it's not like they're, you know, uncorking shipwrecked bottles of, of Clicquot, right? This is like Corbel, it's the cheap stuff. But it gets even stranger because then she starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. I mean, the whole thing is just a bit much. So Judas asks the question that really everybody in the room is thinking. Like, why, why? I mean, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? And whatever his personal motives are, you miss the force of the story unless you recognize that, you know, there's a little bit of a point in there. And his point is not just that this money could benefit a lot of people. The temple is right next door. And in addition to it being the, the place in, the, in Jewish society where people could have their sins forgiven, the place that was close to God's heart, it was also a place that managed welfare. It managed all the, the social systems for caring for the poor. And so Judas isn't necessarily just being mean or just being greedy. He's saying, look, this is what you're all about, Jesus, right? You're all about lifting up the oppressed, the brokenhearted. And we have a system for doing that. And she is like just making a mockery of it in the most crass and unimaginable way possible. What is she doing? And more to the point, Jesus, why are you letting her do it? And I would imagine that in a room like this, Maybe there's a bit more Judas's in the room than Mary's, like in the sense of like how we're coming to think about that. Maybe a little bit more rational than emotional. I mean, we like a a, a liturgy because we like order. It's not that we don't like emotion in our singing. We're like all for emotion, bring all the emotion, just so long as that emotion is contemplative, right? It's not an emotion. It's... And Judas is like, his is the voice of common sense. His is the voice of decency, of, of public order. Don't waste precious money and resources. Don't step too close to the boundaries of human decency. Don't bypass all of the well-thought-out systems of providing for those in need. These are the voices of wisdom, we say. They're the ones of stewardship, of policies and procedures, of bylaws, of strategic plans. And yet, he cannot see the one thing that is right in front of him, the thing that only Mary has eyes to see, that Jesus is going to die in a week's time. And yeah, I mean, there's reasons why Judas isn't prepared to see that. 
Somewhere along the way, he lost confidence in the kingdom that Jesus was bringing into the world. In the other Gospels, this episode is the last straw for him. He goes off right afterwards, sells Jesus out. But the point is, nobody else in the room is seeing it either. For her, the whole idea of having a dinner party at the end of the world is just ridiculous. Like, what are you all doing here? Like, don't you see what is happening? The kingdom of God is in our midst, and you're all carrying on like it's, it's not a big deal. And the thing is that Jesus goes unrecognized. This is one of John's favorite themes all throughout his gospel. At the very beginning of it, he writes this. The true light that gives light was coming to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. God became present into the world. And nobody hardly blinked. And so Mary's like, maybe I got to do something crazy just to get your attention. A while back, the Washington Post ran a story uh, about a familiar scene. Uh, A man sat at a metro station in Washington, D.C. He took out his violin case and started playing. Uh, And he did so for about 45 minutes. It was a cold January morning. He played six Bach pieces. It was during the morning rush hour, and so about 1,000 people came in and out, mostly on their way to work. And after three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed that there was something going on, and so he stopped for a few seconds, acknowledged, and then went on his merry way. A minute later, the violinist got his first tip. Lady put a dollar in his violin case without breaking a stride, going on her way. And then a few minutes later, someone stopped by to, to listen, and then after a few moments, looked at her watch, realized, ah, clearly I'm late for work, I gotta, gotta get on my way as well. In the post, the way they told the story, the, the one who stopped and paid the most attention was a three-year-old boy. He had to fight against his mother who was taking him, kind of shuffling him off to one destination or the other. But the boy kept like stopping, digging in his heels, looking at the violinist. And so the mom stopped for a few moments, but then eventually tugged him away. And the whole time the boy was, had his head turned back looking at the violinist. During his 45-minute session of these six uh, songs, six people stopped for a little while. About 20 gave him money. Uh, total haul for the day was about $32. And while he finished... Uh, playing at the very end of it, things just went back to normal. No one applauded. No one noticed. Soon the kind of mechanical sound of the subway just kind of came back. And nobody knew that the violinist was Joshua Bell, who is one of the finest musicians in the world, playing some of the most intricate pieces ever played on a violin worth several million dollars, a 17th century Stradivarius. And two days before this little subway experiment, Bell sold out a theater in Boston where the average person who came to listen to him play paid $100 a ticket per seat. And I couldn't help but think about this because that's the scene that's going on here in John's gospel. Mary is like that child pulling against the weight of her culture to show what's really going on here. And Judas is like the mother saying, come on, we've got other more important things to do. But then Jesus says, look, hey, don't you see? 
Don't you see, she's actually behaving just like I am. She is demonstrating the extravagance of, of human love. She's pouring out her whole self, her, her financial, her social, her emotional self, just to gain your attention by this gesture that's absolutely beautiful. And I, I'm here. I'm, I'm demonstrating the extravagance of divine love. I, I'm showing you what God is like. I'm pouring my whole self out, physical, spiritual, metaphysical, just to gain your attention by this act of sheer beauty. Don't you see, I am the extravagance of God. Why is it that only she sees this? Because if you don't notice her, you sure as heck aren't noticing me. Jesus is like that child on the subway, pulling on our sleeves to show us what God is up to in the world. And he's pulling at us, trying to get our attention away from the the trivial, the distraction, all the things that keep us from being present to him. All the things that keep us from acknowledging what really matters. You see, in Jesus, God pours out his most precious and most beautiful thing that he has to show us just how utterly devoted he is to us. And Jesus' life is worth a heck of a lot more than a bottle of perfume or a brand new Lexus. And it's a total waste unless, unless it wins us back to God. So yeah, a few weeks from now, we're going to be knee deep in the season of Advent. We're going to face all those temptations to get caught up in the weight of managing other people's expectations. And in the midst of all that, we can miss the people right in front of us. We can even miss the whole reason that we celebrate is the the mystery, the miracle, the grace of the incarnation of God being present to us. I mean, that's the whole reason we celebrate. And so I want to suggest that there are just a couple of questions and a simple practice that will help us make that jump from the incarnation as a theological reality to something that is a lived experience. And uh, some practices that will index our hearts toward the kingdom that is coming in our midst as we celebrate Christmas. And the first of those is what you might call the Judas question. And it goes like this. What is the thing that you are not able or not willing to see because you get so distracted by your own thoughts, by your own plans about the way things ought to be that you miss what's right in front of you, they miss what's staring you right in the face? What might God be trying to show you? What do those who are closest to you really need from you? And I'm just going to go out on a guess here and say it's probably not another sweater. It's probably you. All of you. So how can you be present to God and present to others so that you don't miss what God is doing in and around you? And that's an important question because in just a little while, the advertisements, the parties, all the events, all the things, the candy, oh my gosh. And it's all going to be right there, and you're going to find it hard to just be there in your own skin, just be present. And sometimes all of those things can just be another way for us to hide. So that's the Judas question. Then there is the Mary question. What is the gift of extravagance that you might be called to do? How can you be present and attentive to what really matters? The thing I love about this story is that Mary met the gift of Jesus' presence with the gift of her own presence. 
She laid it all out on the line, everything she had, all of the risk, all of the shame. She did it all just to show how beautiful it was that Jesus was right in front of her. And when we take the time to be with somebody, it is a gift. It's a relational gift. The conscious giving of our time and our presence. Uh, This isn't a new idea, but I think it's an often neglected one. And so maybe I'll just suggest that one way not to get caught up into the whole retail circus thing is to find ways that you can creatively express just how much you want to be with other people. Uh, I turned 45 years ago, so it's a little bit of an old thing, but Jill uh, gave me this gift that I will always remember. It was the sweetest thing. She reached out on Facebook to people from all different stages of my life, uh, Instagram, all that stuff, and she just had them you know, say a note about what I meant to them. And then she took all those things that people responded, she wrote little handwritten notes, put them in a box, and gave them to me for my 40th birthday. I do not rem- other people gave me gifts. I do not remember a single one of them but I know exactly where that is. And I remember exactly how much that meant to me. Favorite gift that I have given recently was a set of books I gave to my daughter with the stipulation that we were gonna read these together. So it's taken over a year, we're 900 pages in, got about 100 more to go. And the point of it wasn't just to read the stories, the point of it was to do something together, to be with each other. Here's the thing. You don't have to take my word for it. There's actually a wide swath of research in the field of positive psychology, and that's the study of like, all the things that lead to uh, human flourishing and happiness and all that. And they find that there is no link in all of these studies, especially the, the Harvard study that went on for 80 years, the Grant study, they find that there's no real link between hap- happiness and accumulation of things. But the research has found that there is a definite link between happiness and people who use their money to be with others, to engage in relational giving, be those through experiences or, or like travel or, or just time together or simply thinking through who the other person is and what they care about. Those gifts are remembered long after the shine of any new thing is worn off. And the thing is, gifts like that are always going to be risky. Always. What if they don't like it? What if they don't get it? (laughs) Uh, What if, like, the intent behind it is completely lost? What if they don't appreciate how much time I took? And that, too, is a reflection of the gospel. After all, Mary risked being misunderstood with her extravagance. She cast aside everything that was expected of her, everything that was acceptable, try everything that was decent to pour out everything that she had. It was an extravagant waste. But a gift like that given with humility actually drips with grace. Is there a better way to celebrate the gift of God's presence than giving everything? At the heart of the gospel is the God who gave the gift of his presence, knowing full well that it would be rejected by some and that it would be misunderstood by others. But he poured himself out. Friends, God's extravagance is for you. And he never regrets wasting himself for you. Everything that he is for you.